Hey, Heal community, welcome to season six. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. If you're back for more, thank you for continuing to support this project and being a part of it. If you're not yet a member of my email list, go to sarahmarshallnd.com to register. That will continue to be the hub of all new releases of podcasts, articles, and updates. As this project goes into its third year this June, I'm building a team to expand into more ways to support you on your healing journey, and my email list is the best way to do that. Go to my website, sarahmarshallnd.com to sign up. Welcome to Heal. Summing up today's podcast is nearly impossible. Reginald White, the Senior Director in Human Resources for the Research Division at Cornell University, is an intellectual phenomenon who challenges us to take ourselves on and face how we've built a society addicted to dominance. Weaving in quantum physics, humanitarian studies, and a core foundation of mindfulness as a practice for inner work of healing racial justice, we do our best to explore how we can heal humanity together. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. All right. Here we are. Yes, we are. So excited. So exciting. And you are such there. I mean, the minute I first got to be in a present room with you, you started bending my brain. And I was like, oh, we got to have this conversation on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So I am just so honored and so grateful for you to take some time out of your life and your day to pour some of your knowledge and your wisdom into our direction and who you are in one aspect. This is does not encapsulate who you are, but one aspect. So this is Reginald White, and you have been the Senior Director of Human Resources for the Research Division at Cornell University. Yes. And some of the stuff that stands out for me in your bio is one where you help tell the stories of Cornell researchers. Yeah. So the research division is really sort of the the infrastructure of of Cornell research. So that is, when we think about um, research, we often from the outside, right, we think there's a researcher, he's in a lab, he or she's in a lab, they're doing something, and we don't know how they got there, we don't know what's going on, but when they come up with a breakthrough, right, we're really interested and intrigued. But we don't think about the infrastructure that's necessary to um, allow them to, I was in a meeting yesterday about animals. We do research with animals, thousands of them. We do research with um, humans. We do research with using chemicals. We, so there's a whole infrastructure around making sure that there's proper um, treatment and guidance of in, in those kinds of things. But then there's a communications piece around how do we tell the story about what's happening at Cornell relative to research. And that function reports to me. And we have a website where we highlight um, the great things that researchers have done. So, you know, yesterday there was a conversation that one of our researchers won the equivalent of a Nobel Prize in the life sciences. And so, like, we tell his story, right? Because we want you to know that great things are going on at Cornell in terms of the, the work that people are doing. And those, the ways in which that work is actually impacting humanity, not only our upstate New York community, but the world. That's awesome. I love that. And I, um, not at the level of working at Cornell, but I have an honors in research from medical school and I participated in research all through my undergraduate. So that warms my heart as well. (laughs) We're real humans with real lives and whole backgrounds. We're not just the paper that got published, you know? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Awesome. And then there's, I mean, there's so much here, but you know, you've also worked as an executive coach to the faculty, to the staff, and particularly in the campus around leadership and diversity and inclusion, the chair for the Men of Color Colleague Network Group. And then you yourself are a graduate of Cornell. You got your bachelor's in uh, psychology, and then you have an MBA from Boston University. You've done work on the side of marketing and also have worked for financial institutions. Like there's just a real diverse background that you bring forward. And then the conversation that you and I had that really sparked my interest here is my experience is that you have a very powerful and unique way of talking about society and culture as a whole, like literally at a global level 
and how we've been about each other. Yeah. And, you know, what that sparked was a conversation of, you know, I've had an interest in what does it mean? Well, my calling is literally people are healed and made whole. Thus, here we are in a now almost two-year inquiry and what does it mean to heal? How do we heal? And, and that's mostly been focused on the physiologic level or the psychologic level or the emotional level and sometimes the spiritual level, but I've had some conversations where we've gotten bigger than that. And so this drives up the like, you know, I've researched recently started to really dive into Gaber Mate's work and he talks a lot about trauma and healing trauma and how trauma is at the root of a lot of physical illnesses. And then that begs this next issue, which is we are living in a traumatizing culture. So then, then what? <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting about that, and, 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 and I love that, that observation, right? That we're living in a dramatizing culture. The interesting thing is, that, as you say that, right, it implies that it's new. And, and, <laughs> and in fact, the more I pay attention, the more I realize that the history as it's been captured in the various tombs of human history have us. Um, in trauma, right? Where as the, our, you know, if you go back to the biblical stories, right, of Noah and the ark, right? If you, if you think about, you know, the story of Noah and the ark where there's this flood <laughs> and you have to build an ark and you have to put everything, you have to put species and people all on this ark, right? There's trauma associated with that, right? There's this idea that the story comes that God is so mad at, at, at that human beings, at humankind, that he might have it be flooding such that the only way for people and animals and, and life to survive is that they that Noah build this ark. I mean, there's this kind of like a lot of the stories that we have about the history of humanity has violence, has you know, suffering, has this sort of, and so, so as we think about, there's wars, there's violence, there's death, there's, you know, David and Goliath, right? I mean, there's, right? Well, and there, if we go into the biblical stories, I mean, there's spite, there's resentment, there's grudges <laughs> that are held against each other. <laughs> exactly. And, and so within the context of the story about what it means to be a human, there is this sort of undercurrent, which essentially says, we are incapable of living in harmony with each other. Therefore, we should create societies and structures and boundaries and hierarchies to determine who are God's chosen people, to use that language, right? And to, to determine which parts of the land um, we might have dominion over. And so there's this quest, right, for there's the, even the word dominion, right, suggests, right, that someone might have dominion over something or someone else. The as, same as a, word. <laughs> we just don't like to use the dominate one. It sounds a little more, but that's almost like more authentic. Exactly. And so, so what my observation first, right, is as because I, I'm also in the place of living in the present moment, that it feels, you know, like we're in, we're in trauma. And then when I step back, I go, wait, we've always been traumatized and traumatized by each other and traumatized in our understanding of how to express our humanity. Mm. And we've, one thing that I came up with recently is the observation that was in, within the context of our vernacular about um, how human beings interact, we have decided that hatred and fear and dominion, domination, that they are signs of strength and that love and vulnerability and courage and harmony and collaboration, that they are signs of weakness. And so when you're in a conversation as a society that has a construct, which essentially says that it's better for you to hate another person, this, that, that even, I mean, this is one of those things that's really fascinating. You know, you, you know what the golden rule is, right? Mm -hmm. So the golden rule says treat other people the way you would like to be treated. Well, some years ago, I discovered that though that sounds really nice, in fact, it, it, it has implicit in it a notion that we're all the same. And so if I treat you the way I want to be treated, 
I have to understand on some level implicitly that I think you're me. It takes out the curiosity for me to figure out who you are and what life means to you and what matters to you. And it takes out the idea that I could accommodate you, that I might collaborate with you, that I might be expanded in my understanding of what it means to be a human being by simply putting what I know, how, who I am and what my lived experiences have been. And I might open up my heart, mind and spirit so that I could learn about your experience and that I might discover new ways of being simply by engaging with you and learning about your journey. So there's now what's called the platinum rule. The platinum rule says, right, I treat other people the way they'd like to be treated, not how I'd like to be treated. But the golden rule was like, I mean, it was drilled into our heads, right? Yeah. You treat other people the way. And, and, and so then in our conversations and in our interpersonal relationships and in our, our business relationships, et cetera, there was always this sort of notion, I'm right. And therefore I treat you exactly based on my preconditions, predilections, idiosyncratic ways, because you're just like me, aren't you? And if you're not, I'm going to ostracize you. Yeah, absolutely. And like what we now know more and more about like, okay, so we take the golden rule and start to actually make it come from the conceptual to like on the court, literally, what would it be like to live that? Then you just pepper in a little bit of what we know about neuroscience and neurology and how our brains formulate survival mechanisms from our experience of stress and trauma as we move through life as children. And that by the time you're 18 years old, 85% of your brain patterns are locked in. So you could then extrapolate 85% of your known ways you think you should be treated and others should be treated has been formulated by between a two-year-old and an 18-year-old going through life. That's where most of our actions come from, unless there's further growth, development, awareness, practices, such to start to pull those things apart. Inquiry being a huge one of those. Inquiry and curiosity. And, you know, we can even look from literally the Socratic method of inquiry scientifically and into the nature of our world, because we do this exact same thing with the nature of our world as we do with to each other as human beings. You know, in naturopathic medicine, one of the core distinctions of naturopathic medicine that sort of encapsulates it and sets it apart from the way that conventional medicine is practiced is we stand inside of following the laws of nature. And then that begs the question, well, what are the laws of nature? And so there's this constant inquiry into looking into the way that nature, which then you can start to boil down into scientific observation, because that's how we do that. And for a very long time, the sciences were birthed out of that observation. And then something in the last hundred years has started to click over where a lot of times there's this like arrogance of we know better than nature which isn't really only in the last hundred years, <laughs> but there, and that can, and that can skew. And like literally as a researcher, where research comes from is often much more inside of that realm of like observing nature, concluding functionality of the observations of nature, and then formulating ideas about how life works from there. And there's been places where we've gotten into technology and biochemical science that have started to pull us away from just being present to that context. Well, what's also interesting about that is that something we talked about in our, as we were thinking about doing this and preparing to do this, is this, this, this concept where quantum physics essentially says that the act of observation changes the thing being observed and the observer. And so within the con conversation there, that was, that didn't exist, right? We didn't acknowledge that the presence of the, so the question from a researcher perspective, the question that I ask and the way in which I set up my experiments impacts what it is that I see. We also didn't have the conversation around consciousness. And so there, is, there are things going on. I like the dog whistle, right? So we're in a, we're in a conversation where we have a, we have a dog, we get this dog whistle thing, right? It looks like a regular whistle. We blow it, it we can't hear a thing. And yet the dog responds. And we're like, well, wait, right? This, how is this possible? 
Well, it's possible because there are sounds coming out of that whistle that our ears don't have the perception to actually hear, the capacity to hear. And so if we depend on human capabilities to observe and to therefore classify as if, you know, in the conversation of science, right, it's like, well, of course, it's replicatable. I can see it over and over again. But what if I was wrong? And so we have, right, in the history of conversation, right, we thought the world was flat. We thought, right, so there are all these sort of things that I think now is a sort of a opportunity to have a conversation around. So what if everything I knew about humanity was wrong? What if human beings were, in fact, designed, hardwired to be in community with each other? What if love was the highest level of expression of humanity and that all of these centuries we've been suppressing it? What if the person on the other side was not separate from me, but was in fact a part of humanity and the energy flow and pattern that I'm expressing as a human being? What if I understood that when I'm interacting with you, that both of us are changing by the interaction and therefore I should be kind and nice and I should be open because in the moment we're meeting each other, we're creating something. And that creation can be good and powerful and engaging and big enough for all of us. Like we don't have that conversation, right? We're in this scarcity conversation. We're in this, you know, violent conversation. If I don't agree with you, I must destroy you. If I don't understand it, it can't exist. If I've never seen it before, it must not be real, right? Those, that binary way of being has created a whole lot of conflict for our society. And in fact, at times I'm, I, I watch and listen to the conversations and I'm just, you know, disturbed and annoyed and concerned, right? Where are we going? Mm -hmm. I like to say, you know, in the conversation of diversity. So if you're in a garden, a flower garden, and you've got loads of different flowers, the rose or the sunflower or whatever, you know, gladiola, whatever other flowers you've got in there, they don't say, well, I'm the top flower. And therefore, I'm going to dominate this garden. <laughs> And I'm going to get rid of all the flowers that aren't like me because I've been given some notion that I'm the great flower and you are just weeds. It doesn't happen that way. And so to your point around in nature, right, there's opportunities for in Ithaca, right, there's lots of bird watching. And, you know, you have this sort of conversation about the, the nature of the different variations of birds. Well, One I'm just bird, like... <laughs> I'm cutting you off you're not but like I'm literally like ah because like literally if we look from that place of laws of nature what any biologist botanist ornithologist will tell you is is the diversity that exists in that environment is a massive sign of health yes and when we have created monocultures from industrialized farming it wreaks havoc on the entire ecosystem and the monoculture itself becomes so much more vulnerable to disease and to funguses and to weakness and to insects. And so then there's this requirement of more human intervention with chemicals and pesticides in order to balance it out. The soils become depleted. Water doesn't stick around. You need to use, I mean, literally this is just like straight up farming. Mm -hmm. And that in the shifts in conversations around permaculture and actually creating biodiverse farms. And then there's even a revolutionary conversation that's actually well scientifically backed that plowing has actually been a massive contributor to issues of our environment and actually play a role in global warming in the way that it releases dust mm -hmm. and how those dusts impact the globe literally. And that you actually can have highly productive easier to run, less energy needs to pour in farms that produce incredibly high yields without plowing a field. Mm -hmm. And there's an amazing documentary called Kiss the Ground that illuminates all of this. And it's a soil scientist. And it's like his like 
stand to go out into the world and share about what's possible there. But the, the, one of the key things is when you're not plowing, there's this massive biodiversity and you're utilizing that diversity to create insulation, health, contribution, collaboration between the plants, the animals, the microbes, the soil, all of it. And each one in the diversity is building and making the other stronger. Yeah. And if we could just translate that knowledge, that insight into our interactions with each other, we'd have a different world. Mm-hmm. We'd have a different world. And so to me, that's the, like what I'm up to, right? Is the sort of being in conversation with folks to say, to use the, you know, go back, there's trauma that exists in this notion of separateness. There's trauma that exists in the expression of it and in the enforcement of it. And, and there's violence actually harm, physical, emotional, psychological harm to all of us when we walk around thinking that we must create structures and processes and systems to reinforce a hierarchy of humanity that has each of us and each of our groups be separate from each other and that we must not know our history and we must not be connected to our future and we must create a future that excludes all of the diversity of what it means to be a human being at the same time, right? That um, population, this population growth, there's opportunities for, you know, what's happening in terms of our food systems. There's the environmental challenges of the way we've been living. There's like so much going on. And it's kind of like, we're at this really tipping, I call it a tipping point in terms of our willingness to create a new future. Because the past has not worked, just hasn't worked. And it's, it's hard for people to acknowledge that it hasn't worked. It's worked for some people, but at what cost? At what cost? One of the things you said in our, in our pre-conversation about this that really struck me is like, we can even beg the conversation that it actually hasn't worked for some people. Mm. there's this perception that, and I mean, I'm going to just be bold and say it this way is like that there is, you know, inside of the conversation. I mean, I'm white. I'm from basically upper middle-class suburb of upstate New York. Like, I mean, I've got privilege all over, (laughs) all over who my birth, just where I was born, you know, and the conversation has been a bit like, oh, it worked for me. Mm. But in, in my limited experience of the couple thousands of people that I've had the opportunity to coach, which is a small percentage of the world population, my experience is I have yet to meet a single human being that is not grappling with trauma. And some of the people I've experienced deep trauma with is I have a few friends who are fourth and fifth generation old money with huge amounts of wealth that my brain can't even comprehend multiple generations have never even had to work or have a job and the rampant addiction and mental illness in that generation. So the American dream of go out and create this business and surmount this wealth and be able to hand your wealth down to your children literally didn't work. If our goals are about wholeness, health, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, three generations down, you can just literally see the deterioration, even though by these other standards that we have of the size of the house, the size of the bank account, the investments, this business wealth and success that's happened. I mean, I'm coming from a small sample size in this, but like often I don't see that that produced these extraordinary, healthy, happy, lit up human beings. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and so again, that's part of the, that's not part of our conversation, right? Because we're so, the, the, those people in their lives are so insulated from the rest of us and the rest of us are all in a conversation around striving to be like them. And the system is set up um, increasingly to create more and more barriers to having that happen. And then there's, you know, all the, again, scarcity conversation. There's, there's a zero sum game 
anything that I give to you, that means I don't have it. And it's gone from, from the existence, therefore I must hoard it. Therefore I must, right, I must create, you know, safes. And, you know, I worked in financial services, right? And it was always amazing to me, right? We, in, in a bank, right? You have these huge vaults, right? And it's like, what, what is, what's in there, right? What, what's, <laughs> what's in there? Pieces of paper, you know, gold, you know, we, we had way back in, in, in the early days, like we had safety deposit box, right? Mm-hmm. Boxes. And people used to actually have these little safety deposit boxes. And my, one of my jobs was to actually let people into their safety deposit box. And, you know, their boxes were, you know, 12, 15 inches long and five inches wide. And you're like, what can you put in there? Right. <laughs> and, and I've got to have a key and I've got to have a vault and I've got to lock it and I've got to open it every day and close it to make sure what's in there. Right. I was always so like curious. Right. And of course you couldn't, you couldn't actually look to see, but people had, you know, stocks and bonds and they had right all this kind of stuff that was like, so how is that actually adding to your humanity? How is that the stuff you've got locked away going to give you access to joy? Mm-hmm. How is that going to give you access to love? How is that going to give you access to connection? How is that going to give you access to vulnerability and courage? None of it. You lock it away as if, right, you'll need it for a rainy day. But in today, the opportunity is to engage with another human being. In this moment, there's an opportunity to bridge differences and bridge and learn from each other and expand what's possible with each other. None of the things that I've locked away actually give me access to that. And perhaps in the act of actually physically locking things away, I actually begin to lock away parts of myself. And if I lock away parts of myself, then I don't have access to them myself. Myself, and then, yeah. And then I don't have access with you yeah. and interaction with it. And that's almost verbatim what Gaber Mate talks about with the process of when we experience moments of complete devastation as we are developing. There is, he, he references it like there's a freezing of yourself. You've frozen a part of yourself, locked it away. And we know through studying trauma that often people aren't even aware of things that have happened because their, their psyche and their neurology is so locked it away that there's no memory of it. And in certain healing modalities, those memories and experiences and emotions start to thaw. Yeah. And in the thawing, there's a release. There's often a lot of emotional, maybe grieving or release of that that happens and then literally there is an opening, a warming, a softening. And, and you can watch people as they go through these modalities, myself included, I've been you know, at work on this, where I come out the other side and I literally have more access. I have more access to myself. I have more access. Like I've been recently at work on this, particularly my intention as I've been doing some of my own healing in the last literally few weeks has been on discovering and cultivating a degree of kindness. I mean, throughout my driven, successful, accomplished life (laughs) and my own addiction to perfectionism that I've been at work on unwinding, I mean, I've had the privilege of, of meeting some like really incredible human beings that have created curriculums and huge impactful conversations of the transformation of humanity. And I was at Starbucks standing behind one of these said gentlemen, Sandy Robbins, who has done a lot of consulting work with a company called Landmark. And he helped actually create the whole communication curriculum. And he had just been a primary speaker at this conference of a thousand people that I'd participated in. And I end up standing behind him at Starbucks, right? Because that's how that goes. And I have a moment to converse with the Sandy Robbins. And I'd have no idea what I said. He must have asked, how was the conference for you? I said something, but I remember what he said back to me. It sounds like you've been really hard on yourself. Mm. You could just not be so hard on yourself. 
And here I am in a conversation. I don't know what came out of my mouth, but this opportunity to talk to this man and of all things he could have said or shared, that's what he honed in on. Mm -hmm. And this has been a theme throughout my life and it comes up over and over and over again. And, and so, but we even look at the, the languaging hard on ourselves, a hardening of ourselves, locking away. And like, even in the, the literal sense and the analogy of the safe deposit box is, is like, yeah, in theory, like we're taking items of wealth and placing them in a safe place. And there's sort of an implication of like against all of society, but often safety deposit boxes in particular are locking something away from other family members, business partners, people who actually are very close to you. That that's the particular thing about that structure. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting inquiry of like where trust is lacking and uh, what it is to actually cultivate authentic trust versus we have a societal conversation of blind trust and simple trust where it's like, you know, literally you should like the golden rule, right? It's like, you should just trust each other, but we don't. And then we don't do anything about how to actually cultivate authentic trust where there's actual, like in my soul and in my being and in my mind, genuine experience of safety and trust. I mean, when we came like, again, when you look at the conversation you've presented of what if as human beings, it is innate for us to be community oriented. What if that's actually our true selves? Yes. And we've been doing something else that has been literally self-harm and then harming of others around us. Yeah. That, that to me is like that question and the and the answer. So I so I believe in Tony Robbins's point of view that the quality of one's life is is in direct relationship to the quality of the questions one's willing to ask. And so by asking that question and even staying open to the answers, because I've been asking it myself and I ask it of other people every once in a while. And of course, no one knows the answer yet, except that what I've observed, right, is that even in the early stages of pondering it, there is life, there's expansion, there's possibility that didn't exist before I asked the question and awareness, right, of, oh, wait, well, what if I've been locking things off from the people I, I, I care about the most? What if trust is that I actually, by, by, by going into a bank and getting a safe deposit box, what if I'm actually acting as if I don't trust? And therefore, right, I'm reinforcing the lack of trust in the world, in myself, in the people I love the most. And therefore, right, I'm reenacting that lack of trust in every relationship. So I, I have, when I do coaching, one of the things that's really interesting is what, what I'll call the dichotomy around trust. So there are people who they use the language, right? You have to earn my trust. Mm. And then there are other people who use the language, I'm a naturally trusting person. And you can lose my trust, but I give it to you as a, as a condition of our relationship. And it's been fascinating. I've, been, I've done group work where, you know, there'll be literally this sort of divide in the room, right? And the people who are like, you have to earn my trust are sort of waiting with their hands and their arms folded and their scowling face. Let me check you out. And the people who are giving trust, right, are sort of in the space of, well, I'm just going to assume you're a good person. I'm going to assume goodwill. I'm going to assume that we're going to work together and collaborate effectively. And unless you do something to demonstrate something different, oh, wait, you're doing something right now, right? With your arms folded and your scowling face, that's making me take pause around the idea that I should, in fact, grant you trust. But I'm just going to give it to you anyway, because that's my natural way of being until you continually show me that you're walling yourself off from the possibility that exists by the context that's created in our connection with each other. And so I just think it's kind of an interesting space. And I wanted to also go some bit back to something else you said. So often in the coaching conversation, this idea that, right, that our way of being is developed between two and 18. 
So often in terms of the conversation I'm having with people, there's this kind of, I'll call it a matter of fact around, yes, I figured it all out by the time I was 18 and I know how the world is and I know how, who I am and I'm gonna be this way forever. And so what's, also been, what's all, always been fascinating to me is sort of like, if you watch children, you actually realize, so you know, someone will tell me a story about trauma, something happened when I was five like, oh, really? That was really bad. That's really horrible, right? And, and of course, right, I wasn't there and I'm meeting this person when they're 30 or 40. And so they'll recount the story of this thing happened when I was five. I'm like, well, have you ever been around a five-year-old? And they're like, yeah, of course. You know, I've got children or nieces and nephews or whatever. There are five-year-olds all around me. I'm like, well, do you count on and trust their perception of the world? <laughs> Like, what, what don't those five-year-olds know that you know at 30 or 40 years old? Oh, a whole lot. Okay, so can you at least acknowledge, right, that as a five-year-old, you didn't actually know everything? And that maybe this perception you have of the story and the way society and life and your family structure requires you to be is not complete. And that, even that conversation, that question opens up people to like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. And then as you mentioned earlier, there's also this thing called neuroplasticity, right? Which essentially says that in the moment that I desire with an intention to create a new neural pathway, to change my behaviors, to change my beliefs, to change the way I go to work every day, to change what I eat, to change what I watch on television, to change what I read, that, that there's actually, you know, biology, right, where my brain is changing. Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, do I hold on to my two to 18 year old self as I'm emerging and growing and changing in the world? And while the world, oh, by the way, is changing outside of me, or do I embrace the discoveries of who I can be in the world? Because as a two year old, I can't possibly be the same person that I am in having this conversation because I don't have the language or the experience or the information, the knowledge. And so how do I create space for this new person who is me to be? And how do I create space for the person you're describing and creating to be? And so that, and then and in a community, how do I create space for all of us to be in this constant process of acknowledgement, understanding of who we are today, and then setting intentions and creating new possibilities and transforming moment by moment and in interaction after interaction, what's possible. That's a big question. Yeah. But life is big questions. The fact that we woke up today gives us the opportunity to ask for what purpose? Why am I still here? When you come to terms with the fact that life is not endless, that there's a beginning and an end, is today my end? We learned in a year or 18 months or two years or however long it's been with this sort of COVID thing, right? Yeah. That life is not promised. Oh, in case we didn't know that already. <laughs> it's got a big exclamation point. It's got a big exclamation point. And so then the question really becomes, why am I here today? Why are you here today? What contribution can we make to creating a better life for ourselves and for the people who we come in contact with today? What possibilities are, exist just because we were able to connect with each other today? And if right, life becomes this constant engagement and exploration and inquiry and appreciation and expression of gratitude for the fact that we've been granted another day. And if we could use that day, we could rest at night thinking, well, I use this day really well because I did this or I gave that or I shared this or I learned this. Then life doesn't have to be this sort of endless cycle of perfection, right? I'm still becoming, I love Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, right? She didn't say I'm, I'm, I've arrived, right? She says, I'm I becoming. I am, I'm becoming, yeah. Right, she says, I'm becoming. She says that, that what I've discovered about my life is that in every moment, in every interaction, in every series of things, I'm becoming more of who I could be as a human being. 
What if all of us acknowledged we were becoming and that in each interaction, the person we were interacting with could contribute, be a contribution to our becoming? How do we follow that? <laughs> I'm like, is this, do we conclude right here? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's the opportunity, right? Is this yeah. sort of being willing to ask the big questions, yeah. being willing to, to become a better person, a better human being in each moment and not better in terms of perfection, but better in terms of our understanding of how human being gets expressed today yeah. and better understanding of capacity to make the world a better place, better capacity to heal from the trauma that I, that I created yesterday or I experienced yesterday or I experienced when I was 18 or eight or whatever, right? But this capacity to um, unthaw yeah. who I've been so that I might make room and space for this person I'm becoming. And I love that you brought it back into the inner work because I've had a, a lot of period of time of my growth and development has been focused on the external, my relationships, how I am with other people. And, and I got a lot of leverage out of that. There was a lot of, of healing and growth and transformation, but I reached a certain point about 10 years into that journey where I noticed there was an element of a carousel that I was on where it was like, I was more acting the way I felt like I needed to act than being who I actually really wanted to be. And, and I started to notice that the external world around me and my relationships, I could hold a particular way that more or less were authentically or looked pretty great, healthy, mm -hmm happy, very little conflict in my, my relationships, my world, where the violence was still very strong was in my mm -hmm. relationship to myself and inside of myself. Mm -hmm. And that shifted the healing work that I've been doing into an inner journey and to doing things that in, in, in shamanism and also in naturopathic medicine is anything in the realm of heart work, things that actually start to work on and are practices for how do we unthaw? How do we heal? What are the actual modalities that give us access to that? You know, there are different forms of that in psychology and therapy, family constellation work and vagal theory work does that. I'm not going to be able to get the whole list. There's, there's a pretty awesome. And, and again, I've just particularly been studying under Gaber Mate's work. Cause he's like, this is what he's doing. This is what he's up to mm -hmm. is this level. And when you know, one of the pre-conversations that you and I had that I, I, at the slight risk of opening up an entire other Pandora's box, <laughs> but why not see where we go was a statement that you said is addiction to dominance is a mental illness Yeah, and dominance as like culturally where we're addicted to dominance and where it's so ingrained that that's the only way to survive is dominate or be dominated. And that shift in context, like, like I've even had it around when you really, truly look at, at truly take on that addiction is a mental illness, not a criminal act. And, and the more we've been standing for that, and this connects right into how we dominate cultures, you know, the, and then a big old Pandora's box of, of drugs in culture what cultures are they in? Where have we actually had no issue letting drugs exist in what communities and what cultures because it actually served us because it suppressed a group of people and set them up into a failure to thrive circumstance and where I'm going to borderline on saying it was intentional. Drugs and addiction have been utilized in societies for thousands of years actually in order to create an access point to dominance, you know, and this goes all the way back to, I read a book, Sapiens. And in that book is it's a brief history of humankind <laughs> in a book yes. and it's amazing. And I'm not actually going to get the author's name right off the top of my head. You might know it, but we'll make sure it's in the show notes. But in the book Sapiens, there was a, a not very huge part of the book was this like, I don't know, a couple paragraphs that just struck me from my education and, and what I got in a very 
particular storyline of American history and global history that I was given, you know, in high school, where we talked about colonialism, we talked about the trading that happened between Asia and Europe. And there is this whole conversation of the East Indian Trading Company and how it was moving spices and it was moving these goods and of, of value. Well, what we don't like to ever talk about, it was moving opiates and opium. <laughs> and actually the East Indian Trading Company was the first international drug company and they were running opiates and there was an intentional use of letting groups of people get addicted to opium because they were easier to control. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that, so so many different places to go with that, but what, one of the things that's interesting is that I happen to be traveling to Asia, um, specifically to Hong Kong, during the period in which the, there was this handover, right, where the there was a hundred years, right, of British rule of, of Hong Kong, and then the hundred years expired, right? And the, the and the the Chinese people, right, decided that's enough, right? You we're not going to have you control our land anymore. And so I was I was literally in Hong Kong, and so there were all these sort of conversations about well, what happened hundred years ago that this actually happened, and it was this conversation about opioids, right? That in fact the British wanted to send opium to China. And in exchange for tea, British love their tea. And the Chinese government was basically saying, no, right? We, you, you're not going to send, particularly because of what you're describing, right? This sort of, if you're um, drugging my people, right? That that's, a, that's a problem, right? I don't want you, those, those things to come into our country. And as part of colonialism, right? We were, in fact, putting these things into different countries so that it made it easy for us, easier for us to dominate. And they said no. And so the treaty was, well, we'll have this piece of land for a hundred years. It's sort of a penalty for you not letting us do what we want to do. And then we'll give it back. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. And it's like, yeah, that was what it was about. And I don't know whether that's a hundred percent accurate, but that when I was in, in the country, right, that was the conversation around why it actually existed. Again, I don't know whether it's a hundred percent accurate because to your point, in terms of the world history we're given, we're not told what actually happened where it's all kind of sanitized on some level yeah. to create a narrative that has dominance be desirable as an outcome in terms of how we interact with each other. And, and yes, I did say in our pre-conversation, right, that this addiction to domination and this notion, this paradigm, which essentially says that the only way for human beings to be in relationship with each other is for one to dominate and one to be dominated. Yeah. It's, it's a very narrow paradigm and it actually encourages trauma because no human being actually wants to be dominated in, per, in perpetuity. And the, the act of domination is exhausting <laughs> because in fact, the person who you're trying to dominate, the groups of people you're trying to dominate don't want to be dominated. And so you have to go to increasingly you know, severe methods to maintain that relationship. Why not have a relationship which is said, essentially says that we could be in parity with each other. We could have equity with each other. There's enough space on the planet. There's enough resources. There's enough food. There's enough whatever resources we need for our survival for all of us to be in community together. And therefore, none of us have to dominate the other. But the groups of people who have dominated in this sort of conversation about supremacy, right? The, 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 even the language of supremacy essentially says, I am supremely right, right, ordained to be better than you, and therefore you must submit. This whole conversation around even within the genders, right? One must submit to the other. And so I think, right, that, that there is a mental illness that comes with that, because once you have the first interaction that this act of domination is not um, accepted by that person, that group that you might dominate, in order, so, so you have two choices at that moment, retreat, reform, change your ways, have a different relationship with the group or, or the person, or continue. And so the first time you choose to continue, 
and you intensify your pressure, your um, uh, ways, your, your methods for this domination, and it seems to work, it's like a drug mm-hmm. because it's, oh my gosh, right? That worked. Let me try this. That worked. Let me try that. And so what we see in history is like this intensification of violence to sustain the social order of dominance and having people be dominated. And so as a society, right, this is one of those questions, right, that is important for us to create a new future is to refine, eliminate the the paradigm of dominance and to release people from the addiction to dominate and the fear of being dominated. Because Because once you've, you know, again, in the paradigm that there are only two ways of being, dominate or be dominated, right? It's either or. It's either or, and there's no place for collaboration. There's no place for trust. There's no place for harmony. There's no place for collaboration. There's no place for really community, healthy, productive community, interdependence, as opposed to just independence. Mm -hmm. But as a society, our narrative is, right, independence is a beautiful thing. Well, independence is a beautiful thing, right, in terms of our capacity to be free from domination. But interdependence is so much more powerful and so much more productive as groups of human beings. Well, if you look at like the way that even we as humans and how how children evolve through their growth, I mean, independence is a big conversation for teenagers. Right. And it's appropriate. It's appropriate. Yes. And then you keep growing. (laughs) That's the like, you know, and if we look at like literally our country, the United States of America, based inside of this declaration of independence, there was a declaration of this shall be and this shall not be. We will no longer allow certain levels of dominance that the people who formulated this country were experiencing from previous governments. But like, really, it's been... 250 years, we get to grow beyond that conversation. Mm-hmm. We get to now say, okay, that lived out its usefulness to whatever degree it did. And <laughs> now where, what, right? And, and you know, this is a huge place to look from, but I say my little world, according to Sarah Marshall, is the issues that we're dealing with in the food system, the issues that we're dealing with of global warming and climate change, the dishes that that integral in the solving of them is this transformation of self and this healing and transformation of what it is to be a human being for human beings. That's all one in the same. Yes. Yes. I agree. Yeah, I agree. So I'm, I'm, I'm a subscriber to the world of (laughs) Sarah Marshall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that's, that's part of this. That's part of the, of the conversation, right. Is, that if I began to be in, I mean, so one of the things I want to just go back to something in terms of the Declaration of Independence, one of the things that I find really interesting about it is that in the process of declaring our independence, their independence, because it wasn't actually our, but their independence, right, from, you know, England, at the same time, the folks who were actually writing that were, were um, slaveholders, Mm-hmm. And so this sort of idea that I should be able to declare my independence and but but I should not allow you to have independence. Again, going back to this paradigm of there are only two ways of being a human being to dominate or to be dominated. And so it was a really sort of fascinating thing. I'm going to deter my freedom from domination from them. And I'm going to give myself permission to dominate this other group of people um, and to use them and to abuse them. And in fact, oh, this world that I've discovered actually was a world that was occupied by someone else. But I killed those people so that I might actually have space so that I could create and expand into, you know, my the, the new frontier that I'm creating. And, oh, it's just inconvenient that these other people are there. I'm going to get rid of them so that I might actually have the conversation and have the space to, to fulfill my aspirations and dreams about being independent from those other people. So there's this really perverse ways in which history has unfolded. And again, I think the opportunity is one to acknowledge history, but to create a new relationship to it such that we might create a more um, inclusive 
desirable, peaceful, collaborative future. Yeah. And something that you and I have talked about in our, our pre-conversations is the, the importance of actually looking into learning from our history the best we, ha- we can. Yes. And, and inside of that, I'm going to recommend a book that hasn't come out yet that I haven't read yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you can but, recommend it anyway. I love it. Uh, it showed up for me. And I mean, literally, and I should look up the, the author of Sapiens. I know Noah is in his name and it's just not pulling the rest of it forward right now. Sapiens was, was a book that literally changed my life. Like, like it, it altered my view of humanity and of myself as a human being in it and of society and culture. Like, I mean, it was incredible the way, and he's a historian and he's from Israel and a very, very acclaimed academic, the author of the book. And, and so this book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity by David Garber and David Wengro, they actually acknowledge the work in Sapiens as being integral into the, their research and where they've gone. And this book, one of the the summary pieces that I pulled out and what made me think of it is, is they, they've really taken a look at misunderstandings that we've had. And, and when we look at the most current anthropology and archaeology, we've actually discovered like Stonehenge was actually not the first organized type of event like that in humanity, that there are other structures and other showings of coordination, spirituality, and wisdom that it would take of technology that predate Stonehenge by 6,000 years. Mm-hmm. And so they've also discovered that this conversation that a particular evolutionary human being that existed in one part of the world and then spread out across the rest is completely false. Mm. We've actually now discovered that there were human beings on North America that, from the archaeological information that predates the land bridge by 10,000 years. Mm. So it wasn't the ice age that populated North America. (laughs) I mean, those are just like glimpses of some of the, like having to rethink what we thought we knew. Well, one of the ones that really struck me was that actually in colonial times, when the initial explorers came over and discovered India new, you know, the new world of Indians here in North America, they actually were functioning kingdoms, governments, and intellectual societies here. Mm-hmm. And that many of our original thoughts of democracy were from long conversations that the, the white men were able to have with the people who were living here, that they actually got the ideas of democracy from these intellectual communities and took it back to Europe. Wow. That's really fascinating. And that the anthropology and archaeology actually is like, that's what was really going on. And that there were democratic societies and whole organizations. And there's also all kinds of this, like, maybe we need to rethink what we thought we knew about how human beings can live together mm-hmm. is there's a bunch of examples of communities of humans that would live in small tribal groups during certain seasons. Mm-hmm. And then they would go live in great, large kingdom societies for half the year. And it was all dependent on the wet season versus the dry season. Mm-hmm. And they would literally come together and there would be big organization of humanity, which we didn't think human beings were capable of at a time when we, we did, we literally assumed that, that, oh, we were just kind of tribal savages living out there gathering food. We were much more animalistic. Well, we've actually discovered thousands of years predating what we thought was possible. And that, that this level of like the flexibility of human beings to actually recognize at this time of year, what is in our best interest is to live in small tribal family groups and go out and hunt and be out in the land. Then we collectively come back together for half the year, share our knowledge, share our wisdom, develop our intellect, develop our spirituality, and then go back into these. I mean, it's just like that that even is a possibility alone is just bending my brain of how I think human beings, what I've been told who we are and what we're capable of. And- yes, I agree. I agree. It's a really, I mean, again, I think the, um, just being conscious of time, I think that, you know, the reality is there are all these questions that we could ask ourselves and in the, in the asking of the questions and in the grading, creating greater awareness of what is and what's been, that we might then be able to have, I, I love this definition that Landmark uses of breakthrough. A breakthrough is not um, changing something that was already existing, but to actually be in the presence of something that wasn't possible 
right? That we broke through to a new re reality, a new possibility. And so for me, that's what this conversation really is about, right? It's yeah. a new possibility of the ways in which we might engage with each other and create language and define who we are to each other and to ourselves and to our world in such a way that it's expansive and creates a brighter and more extraordinary future. Yep. <laughs> That's where we should end it, right there. <laughs> oh my gosh. I knew this was going to be the juiciest, most incredible conversation. I'm so grateful to you for spending your time with us and sharing your, your thought process and your wisdom and your knowledge. And thank you for all of who you've developed yourself to be and to look at and to work with such that we can even have this conversation really, really well, really I love it. it. And I'm so grateful for you for creating the space. Um, and I look forward to future conversations. Absolutely. Until we get to do this again. All right. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you to today's guest, Reginald White, for being radically compassionate. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. See you next time.